the first texting tool we used on the Warren campaign, no joke, nearly bankrupted the campaign. <laughs> you know, we were spending hundreds of thousands of dollars because it was it's a huge country and the tool was very expensive. And so we just thought there had to be a better way. And so we, we put together these tools with Skill to Win to offer them to progressives and Democrats and, and hopefully help. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Nate Rifkin, who's a partner in the new firm Scale to Win, which has quickly become a leading calling and texting tool for Democrats and progressives, and a very interesting example of political technology entrepreneurship. For one thing, they decided to organize as a worker-owned co-op, and they've been adopted by key organizations very quickly. Nate was previously director of distributed organizing at the DNC and distributed channels director for Warren for president, as well as digital director for Randy Bryce for Congress. He worked for Bernie, then Hillary in the 2016 presidential. Nate and Scale to Win is a good story. You should listen. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Nate Rifkin at Scale to Win. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Nate, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. My name is Nathan Rifkin. I am one of the partners over at Skill to Win. We build uh, calling and texting tools for progressives and Democrats uh, across the country. Prior to that, I was the national distributed director for the Biden-Harris campaign in the general election and for the uh, Warren campaign during the primary. I've done a whole bunch of organizing before that, the Bernie campaign, the Randy Bryce campaign, the Hillary campaign for America, all of that. And uh, very excited to now be at Skill to Win, building texting and calling tools. Sounds like you found yourself an intersection of politics and tech that that is a good fit, right? Yeah. I mean, so back in 2015, I was um, I was an organizer on the Bernie campaign. I was the, the first organizer that I hired out in Iowa. We had kind of found this, this texting tool. And we're not really sure what to make of it. And we started texting out um, different folks. Uh, I was working with different college students across the country to teach them how to send text messages to invite volunteers to a local phone bank. And they would then make calls into, into Iowa, which is the power of texting to be able to recruit volunteers uh, and, and help drive action was just so important to make these local phone banks a success that we really kind of thought this was onto something and the, the rest of the campaign then started up a texting program. And, you know, I've been, I've been texting and calling ever since. When you were doing that back in 2015, where, what was the source of the numbers that you were texting? Mostly low dollar donors. Prior to the Bernie campaign, I was a, I was a college senior in, in Vermont and, and Bernie 
you know, enter the race. And I said, this is, this is great. I gotta, I gotta get involved with that. And so it started a group college students for Bernie. And um, so had been working with a network of a large group of college students across the country. And then when I was on the campaign, you know, there were these college students who were tech savvy, who wanted to host phone banks, who wanted to take action, but didn't necessarily have kind of a list themselves. And, you know, we as a campaign wouldn't necessarily want to give someone, here's, you know, a CSV of, of what have you. Um, but we were able to set up text banks. And so these individual college students could text low dollar donors in their area. I mean, you know, someone who gave Bernie $5 or 10 or, you know, $27 to invite them to, you know, a, a local event near them to be able to make these calls. And so that was a really great confluence because we've given, you know, $5, $10, $20. That is a really great indicator that you're someone who's interested in in taking additional action. And so, well, of course, not every low dollar donor was was game to, to hop on and make some phone calls. It's, you know, that's a, that's a high bar ask. Um, enough of them were that it was one of our, our single best recruitment tactics, one of the biggest drivers of, of direct voter contact in Iowa. I want to just back up just a little bit to understand you before you start doing this. At, and it was at Middlebury, right? Mm-hmm. Where'd you grow up? Uh, I grew up in uh, Madison, Wisconsin, and then uh, my family moved to the suburbs of Philadelphia. So spent uh, some time in the Midwest and some time on the East Coast. Why'd you go to Middlebury? My dad was the head of the language school um, when I was a kid, uh, the Russian school. And so I would spend summers at uh, at Middlebury. I always thought it was just incredibly beautiful. And um, I, uh, I wanted, when I was a 16, 17-year-old, I wanted to go read books in the woods. And there are a lot of woods at Middlebury. And so... I took maybe one semester of German when I was there. I did nothing with the language program or the environmental science or all the great things that they did there. I did get to read a lot in the woods. So that that was lovely. And there are um, many, many people throughout progressive politics who, you know, I've kind of gotten to pop into who had, were doing environmental activism there or something else. And so it was a really great experience. What took you into activism on campus? Well, I didn't wind up doing uh, much sort of in the local community that was specifically uh, political activism. You know, I, I um, worked briefly at uh, one of the one of the homeless shelters in town. I'd, I'd done, you know, I'd sort of held a series of kind of odd jobs around, you know, around the community. Primarily in college, my main activity was was college debate, and so I would travel sort of around the country and, and the world doing different <laughs> debate competitions, talking about all of these issues. And, and growing up, you know, uh, my parents are devout MSNBC watchers. And so we would uh, talk about politics as kids. And one of my earliest political memories is of sitting in a hotel room, you know, in, in Florida while the Bush Gore recount is going on because we'd taken a trip to Disney World, you know, <laughs> during that that series of events. And, and um, you know, growing up, that was just sort of the main topic of conversation. And so um, when Bernie declared as a, you know, a young kind of lefty progressive, that really fit with how I saw the world and the idea and the excitement of Vermont's favorite senator living in Vermont. I, I really wanted to be a part of it and um, really, really appreciated kind of all that he that he stood for. I saw the opportunity to to get involved. A bunch of, of my friends on campus were really uh, interested, excited, motivated by the campaign as well, and um, we thought that that maybe other college students would be interested too, and so. Um, it wasn't so much Vermont activism, although certainly there were many UVM kids, many Middlebury kids, many at you know at schools throughout the state who were very excited and, and participated. Um, but it was the ability to, I mean, back in 2015, you know, using like Facebook and stuff like that to 
reach out to, to college students at North Carolina and in North Carolina and Wisconsin and, you know, and, and Iowa and California and just sort of all across the country uh, who felt really spoken to by the, by the Sanders campaign and were just kind of looking for ways to get involved. We started this, this group um, that grew to uh, a little over 400 different colleges and universities that had chapters by the end of it, many of whom were hosting block chalk events or, or phone banks or you know, eventually text banks, um, you know, letter writing, postcards, um, social media events, and, and really sort of being able to use um, really Facebook groups uh, to be able to organize a lot of this and, and pull together um, a bunch of really, really great folks, um, many of whom are doing you know, off really incredible organizing and in their own right right now and um, just really, really incredible stuff. To what degree did you interact with the leadership of the distributed part of the campaign itself? And what do you remember about them? A little bit. I was like sort of very, uh, you know, very anxious to get a job with the Bernie campaign after I graduated from college. I was like working at a market research firm and kind of hating everything about it. And so they said, do you want to go move to Iowa? And I threw everything in my Subaru and drove off, you know, cross country the next day kind of thing. And so there was no distributed team then, you know, it was like the campaign was like 15 people. Um, and, uh, so I, I, I chatted and, and got to work with, you know, the Iowa state folks, like occasionally folks in South Carolina or New Hampshire. Um, there was, a to the extent there was a national distributed team back then, it was, you know, one intern by the name of Sam Gazy, who was, I think a UVM senior. And so we got to work together, you know, a decent bit, but there wasn't, uh, really a distributed team until, um, I think I might be getting this wrong, but I think like a couple of weeks before the Iowa caucus. And so um, it was relatively late to the game and they spent most of their effort on Super Tuesday states and, and all of that. And so in terms of what sort of the actual direct voter contact in Iowa, this kind of network of college students who were hosting phone banks locally using this, this text program to reach out and invite people to phone banks near them um, was sort of a, a large source of the direct voter contact in Iowa. And, and when there was a distributed team, um, you know, uh, Becky Bond and that sort of crew, Zach Exley, um, you know, they spent a lot of time doing, you know, the, the barnstorming and, and the burnstorms, uh, hosting different sort of large rallies across the country in some of the later states. And, um, you know, so when I was redeployed from Iowa, uh, I, you know, I was kind of parachuted into Missouri for a couple of weeks. There was a ton of really incredible organizing and volunteering that had been activated by uh, those barnstorms because there had been sort of a rally that had come through. And so there were motivated and activated volunteer leadership. And we could um, work with the folks who were on the ground who'd been doing the organizing to help kind of structure and build uh, a, you know, a GOTV program. Um, but in terms of the the sort of Iowa direct voter contact, for the most part, you know, we were able to, we kind of stood this up in state and, and the, the, the distributed team, such as it was, you know, sort of kicked off, uh, you know, a, a few months later. It was a, quite a split in the party in 2016. I and my sister were on different sides of it, for example. And, and even though uh, I think both recognizing that the other candidate had some virtues, how did you weather that? And what was your perspective on that? Obviously, I really liked Bernie. There were some issues that I, I thought Hillary was, you know, was really strong on. I did wind up going to work for Hillary in the general election. I thought and, and still do think that Hillary would have been one of the, you know, top five presidents of, you know, of my lifetime kind of thing. I, I liked Bernie better. I, I caucused for, you know, or would have caucused for Bernie kind of thing. 
I do think that Hillary would have made certainly a much better president than than Trump. And so while there weren't too, too many uh, Bernie staffers who kind of hopped over to the Hillary campaign proper, I did, and, and a number of folks did. Uh, a number of folks made some pretty you know significant contributions. I know Bernie himself obviously traveled across the country a lot to support the Hillary campaign and definitely do think a little bit about you know some of the, the missed opportunities of that 100,000 votes across Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Certainly, there are very few people I know who are stronger organizers than many of many of the the Bernie crew, and uh, and I think a lot of them did did a lot to contribute in you know in 2016, whether that was on the campaign or or with you know some of the the you know movement groups or you know or IE side to sort of help out. I, I know a lot of friends went to um, to next gen and, and did a lot of great sort of turnout work among among college and youth voters, even if they didn't necessarily join the campaign proper. What did you observe as you transitioned from one campaign organization to the other? What felt different or what in the areas that you were close to? The Bernie campaign, for better and worse, was a lot freer, I think, you know, in terms of the, you know, I was an organizer in Iowa and, you know, people were willing to give me lists of, you know, hundreds of thousands of, you know, tens of thousands, some large number of kind of donors just to sort of run you know, a, a text program. And and um, for better and worse, I don't think the HFA campaign would have given kind of a, you know, an organizer in Iowa lists of, you know, uh, tens of thousands of donors to run kind of a semi-freelancing, what we would eventually call a distributed program sort of thing. And so the HFA team was definitely, I think, more structured. There was a lot of concern on the HFA side about uh, running a distributed program, I think, period, and sort of the ability of trusting volunteers with with van, with voter contact lists, with even sort of information to go door knocking with the, you know, outside of, of HFA offices. I mean, I, I you know can point to the where the Bernie campaign kind of relied on sort of a, a Slack structure, more ability for volunteers to, you know, to help build text campaigns, to help admin large portions of the program. The sort of equivalent on the HFA side was um, what they called uh, essentially sort of like an expansion hub in San Francisco and New York, and they would open up HFA offices so that volunteers could come into the office to send texts, to make phone calls, um, sort of under the, the really direct supervision of HFA staff. I'm obviously biased. I, I think that uh, trusting volunteers, working to sort of provide volunteers with different resources and helping to empower volunteers to organize within their own communities is a, a really effective, really impactful, really one of the the sources of Democrats kind of main structural advantages in the organizing space over the Republicans. That sort of more office model was the way the HFA team went. And um, it, it was interesting. I, you know, I got to be the distributed director for the Biden campaign in the general. And I think a lot of folks who were maybe a little bit more skeptical in 2016 by 2020 had really seen the power of this approach and had really seen um, just what this tactic could do and, and really invested in it. I mean, the, the distributed program had a budget of, of many millions of dollars to do online outreach across the country. Jose Nunez, who was the digital organizing director, who was my boss in the Biden campaign, was just a really staunch advocate. Uh, you know, I know uh, Jenna O'Malley Dillon, who was the, the campaign manager and, you know, and Pete Kavanaugh and that crew, like, you know, really, uh, really did um, fight for it and, and give the program resources that, um, you know, I, I think previous Democratic presidential campaigns, certainly in the general, had had not done. 
so I, I do really credit them for uh, being willing to kind of back back that program. It's a different tactic, and and it's a level of trust that a frequently correctly uh, security conscious uh, organization set of organizations are not always as as quick to do. After that campaign, you kind of started a career as a digital director uh, and did that for uh, a couple campaigns. Tell me about that role and sort of what you were learning about governors and congressional campaigns and so on as you did that. Yeah, I mean, a lot of really great tools out there. Um, probably the the most impactful time I think I spent as a digital director was as a digital director for the for the Randy Bryce campaign, who was the iron worker who was running against Paul Ryan in 2018. He went viral with his first launch video. At, you know, he had this this Twitter handle that that he came up with. You know, the the moniker Iron Stash, and um, you know, it really really resonated. Really spoke to I think where. Democrats and progressives were at, particularly in, in 2017, when when that campaign launched, of sort of seeing, you know, okay, who are the candidates? How can we win back some of these, you know, exurban, suburban, sort of rural districts that we maybe didn't win in 2016? Um, you know, certainly Trump did carry many of the counties in uh, Wisconsin's first congressional district where Randy was running, where, where I was the, the digital director. One of the things that we found, you know, which is maybe I think a little contrary to the way that a lot of uh, campaigns do run digital programs is the necessity of kind of the quick hit. And one of the things that I think we really focused on as a, you know, as a, as a priority was sort of constantly introducing sort of new ideas, new concepts of really trying to position Randy as sort of the tip of the progressive spear because Randy was iron worker and so didn't have kind of a large connection of, you know, of wealthy friends of people who could chip in to, you know, if we ever did like a Rolodex exercise with him, I think we would have raised like $50 kind of thing. And we really needed to position him so that he could raise sort of via online fundraising in order to mount a viable campaign, particularly against Paul Ryan, who was going to have more money than God kind of thing. And, and any dollar he, he would have wanted, he, you know, could have had. And so tactics and sort of being able to position him as the first, you know, he was the first sort of major candidate to, you know, call to abolish ICE. And, and he, um, you know, was sort of in touch with the Mark Pocan congressional office, who, who then, you know, introduced a bill uh, in, into Congress off of that. Um, you know, he was one of the first folks to call for, uh, you know, a, a Green New Deal, sort of a lot of these kind of big progressive priorities. And, and one of the reasons we did was, you know, I could sort of bring to the the campaign to Randy to the team and say, you know, look, this is where progressive energy is. This is good policy. Um, frankly, I mean, Randy is a is a really strong progressive, and these were the things that he believed. But I think that a campaign that was more reliant on maybe larger donor contributions would not have been willing to maybe take some of the risks that that the campaign really felt like we needed to be able to, you know, keep Randy relevant to raise the resources we needed to to run. A, a really aggressive campaign against the Speaker of the House. He did. The Speaker of the House did did decide not to run again. Versus, um, you know, facing Randy, we did um, regularly hear kind of like rumors, and you know, people would tell us, "Oh, I got a, a poll from uh, from the Ryan campaign," and you know, and so we would. We it, it certainly sounded like he was um, regularly tracking kind of like the matchup him versus Randy. While it's impossible for me to say, it certainly does seem like and sound like the polling was close enough that he was not necessarily willing to uh, to take on that fight. You know, impossible to say if that was the sole reason certainly does sound like that was at least a factor in his decision not to not to run again. What do you mean when you say quick hits in that context? 
One of the interesting things I think we saw was the longevity of an email hook. So if we were to do an email fundraising ask that talked about, you know, Randy's support for a Green New Deal, it would raise at, you know, X. And then if we did a second email on that topic, it would raise, you know, almost to a T, like one half X. And, you know, the third day would be like a third X kind of deal. And so you really saw a decay function in the type of the hook very quickly and um, the ability to sort of constantly rotate. And I think some of that is sort of the Trump media environment. You know, if you look at um, CrowdTangler or some of these other sources that aggregate the top performing links on Facebook, you would see a similar phenomenon that like Gina Haspel, sort of the, the Trump CIA pick to had likely, you know, been involved in running some of the CIA torture program. Um, you know, petitions around that or, or activism pushes around that were very effective on sort of day one. But as Trump changed his topic, um, so too did where the energy and uh, among progressives, among the left shift to. And you could really see in terms of the, the link clicks, the retweets, the online engagement, the donations shift uh, almost daily. And so we really felt like we had to rotate what we were talking about to help make sure that Randy stayed relevant in the conversation, to help keep you know his online engagement high, his fundraising numbers strong. And that necessitated a lot of constantly rotated creative, constantly rotated hooks um, in order to help make sure that he was going to be able to effectively raise the resources to mount uh, an aggressive campaign. So that kind of following the current zeitgeist in the progressive activist community and those quick hits and those kind of hooks happens on both sides of the aisle and seems to be an effective way to raise money and get attention nationally. In the general election, Randy doesn't win. How do you think taking all those positions uh, affected the general or did it uh, in that particular district? I thought about that a lot. That campaign was really certainly really hurt by the fact that Paul Ryan didn't run again. Much of the race was shaping up and certainly the, the campaign that we'd spent, you know, nine months building was really geared to, to position this as a referendum against Paul Ryan. And, you know, I think that there was, you know, certainly Ryan's favorability numbers in that district had never been, been lower. Um, you know, negative sentiment um, on, on both sides. There were There were some who were upset that Ryan, they felt, was like insufficiently supportive of Trump. There were many more who felt that he was like overly deferential to Trump. He was in a tough spot. And, you know, and I do really think that there was a viable pathway to victory against Ryan of raise the resources, um, mount a really aggressive campaign against Ryan and say, you know, it's time for a, a check and balance, time for change, support this iron worker, military veteran, you know, from Caledonia, Wisconsin, with the resources that were raised. And, and I think that was sort of a viable pathway to victory. When Ryan dropped out, the dynamics of the race really changed. And the person running against him was not a great guy, um, a guy by the name of Brian Style. He was a, a Ryan staffer for a number of years. He had been a, a lawyer who was involved in some of the outsourcing of jobs from, from the community for this, this uh, manufacturing company that he worked for. Um, but he was also relatively unknown, and it is a conservative district. And so if the race is framed as a referendum on do you support, you know, Randy Bryce in a Republican-leaning district, or do you support, you know, a Democrat in a Republican-leaning district, a, a relatively high-profile Democrat, that is a, 
a tougher race to win than do you support Paul Ryan? And, you know, after Paul Ryan dropped out, the sort of dynamic of the race changed to be much more, do you support this relatively high profile Democrat? I was in R plus five district at the time. I mean, that was a, that was going to be a tough one for him to, to win. Um, And certainly I think in the 2018 wave, there were only one or two candidates who won races that were sort of more Republican leaning that year than Wisconsin 01 district, uh, which really had been carved up to, to make sure that Ryan could kind of continue to run there in, in perpetuity. That being said, it, it's really interesting the sort of stuff that the Republican Party and, and um, the Paul Ryan Associated Super PAC really hit Randy with. It really didn't have anything to do with a Green New Deal or with the Abolish Ice stuff, which you would think is kind of tailor-made for them. They would articulate was kind of a thing that they would want to be running against. They were really arguing the same sort of generic creative in all of the districts. They were sort of making, here's this like, you know, migrant caravan type stuff pouring across the border. They didn't use, you know, supporting citizenship for for people. They didn't really use any of the Green New Deal or the Abolish ICE stuff at all, which, which I actually think does. They just ran boilerplate Republican campaign. Yeah, basically. And it was much more, you know, Randy Bryce wants to, you know, make all the illegal immigrants kind of like come here and you know, whatever. I think that that there is a lesson for that in Democrats and that like they are, Republicans are going to run the campaign they're going to run. And to some extent, they're only negligibly running against you, whether you are taking progressive stances, you know, or conservative stances. QAnon thinks that you're a Satan worshiping, you know, cabal group nonetheless. And it doesn't really matter if you are arguing, like, I think we should have a one pathway to citizenship for, you know, for like 12 DACA recipients, or I think we should do the morally correct thing and give citizenship to, you know, to, to folks who want to come to this country. Did it help, do you think? I mean, he got about 40, 42%. Yep. Do you think it generated voters for him? Do you think it was a wash, you know, all, all of the primary campaigning and the outreach to the left? I think it helps him win the primary for sure. I think it helped him raise the resources to run an aggressive campaign. I don't know that the Green New Deal stuff or the Abolish High stuff that we put out there, we organized the first union campaign in, in the country. I don't know if that ultimately was a meaningful tipping point for many voters. I, I think if you're casting a vote for many of those voters, not all, but many, you're deciding, do you want broadly a Democratic House or a Republican House? The issue stance is taken by you know, those individual House of Representative candidates like matter in the aggregate because they matter and shape the overall platforms of the parties. But I don't know that that was a really significant tipping point for a typical voter. What I do think was really helpful was the ability to raise the resources to be able to mount a really aggressive organizing program and to be able to to run a large digital outreach plan and, and to be able to text a bunch of voters and call a bunch of voters and run TV ads and, and make sure that that folks knew that there was a viable competitor and that Randy was had a chance and that Randy could win. And so you should go out and vote, you know, for him. And so that's where I think that the sort of lefty stances to position him was kind of the, the tip of the spear really helped. Um, and, and really were able to help win voters, albeit sort of indirectly by helping us kind of raise the resources to, to mount an aggressive campaign. Did he get DTRIP support? Not until very late. He eventually did get some DTRIP support. He was eventually put on the red to blue. 
district flip list as one of I think like the third wave or so. He was not on like their first, second, or you know, pass because of, of because of the nature of the district. I assume. Yeah, that that's my understanding. They had they have not backed a candidate in that district before since the lines were redrawn in 2010, and I don't believe they haven't backed one since. So you know, he was able to to attract that support and get that support, um, but you know, only only marginally. <laughs> Tell me how you landed at the Warren campaign and about your experience there. I love Elizabeth Warren. I, I um, had wanted her to run, you know, in, in 2015. I was really psyched when she ran uh, in, in 2020. And, um, you know, I, I knew that that was the campaign that I wanted to be a part of. And, you know, I'd spent a while trying to reach out to folks to say, hey, I'd love to, to help out, be a part of this, you know. And I kind of had in my mind that I would want to be a distributed director since I'd, you know, been doing a lot of that stuff in 2015, had been running large text programs, large call programs. And I thought this is where I can really contribute the most. I kind of just submitted a, a couple of resumes through their job website. You know, Tessa Simons, who was my boss on the on the Warren campaign, like saw the resume come through. I, I think I submitted a job application for like the California digital director or something because that was what was on the website. Someone flagged the resume for her. She saw it and said, oh, like this is, you know, digital organizing. Like, let's chat about this. And so, um, you know, I did a couple of interviews with her and, and other members of the team and they made me an offer to be the distributed director. And, you know, uh, yeah, you know, could could not have planned it better a little bit. And so uh, really fortuitous and, and lucky that they kind of plucked that resume from, you know, a, a really large pile of, of folks for a completely different role. And I drove up to Boston, you know, basically the week they offered the job. What is a distributed director or distributed, or they call it channels director? Yeah. So, <laughs> um, yeah, the the Warren folks called the distributed channels director. The thinking was to sort of position it as a part of the grassroots mobilization group um, and to sort of make clear that this was part of the grassroots mobilization department uh, and not kind of the organizing department, which was more focused on organizers in early states, in battleground states, um, and making sure that we kind of had the, you know, the door knocking on the ground and making sure that we were really... Um, kind of the difference between organizing in a specific place-based frame versus sort of an organize everywhere all the time, which is, you know, not to say that one tactic is better than the others. I mean, if you need to win a precinct in Iowa, like it makes a lot more sense to send 10 organizers to Iowa, like, you know, and talk to the people in question. But as in terms of a, you know, of a top of the funnel approach of how do we get the volunteer in Sacramento or, Kenosha, Wisconsin, or Austin, Texas, or wherever to be making calls into, you know, into Iowa, into New Hampshire, to help identify the supporters that then a local organizer can go knock on the door of or or recruit to be a precinct captain, that takes a lot of work. And so to be able to have a group and a team that can organize so that whoever wants to be involved whenever they're willing to get involved can get involved right now is a slightly different project. And that's what the distributed channels program and what the distributed organized program in the Biden campaign, uh, you know, what, what I set it up to do. Did you have uh, staff? What, what did it round out to be? The Warren distributed team was made up of about 15 or 16 staffers by the end of it. Um, we had a, a couple of folks on um, a national calling team, a couple of folks on a national texting team, uh, and then a couple of folks uh, running both, um, well, an events team uh, as well as a relational organizing team. 
on the Biden group, we had the same slightly larger team, uh, I think 27 people all in. Uh, and so same, similar sort of breakdown of a relational team, an events team, a, a calling team, a texting team, where the calling and the texting teams were sort of focused on getting IDs. The relational team was focused on, you know, also getting IDs, but really encouraging people to um, make sure that folks were able to remind the people in their own lives to go ahead and um, go to vote, go to support. Um, and an events team that was focused on really recruiting phone bankers, relational uh, friend bank attendees to be able to sort of host these events to also get IDs, remind people to vote, to go support the Biden-Harris campaign or, or the Warren campaign. So here you are on another progressive campaign for president that doesn't quite make it, although there were points where it looked like Warren might be the one to take it. She doesn't end up with the nomination, as we know. How did you take the loss this time? And the Iowa caucus will break your heart every time. Um, you know. It is sometimes a bit of a crapshoot. <laughs> you know. I well back back in 2016 we were pretty sure that Bernie had won the popular vote as well because of the way basically state delegate equivalents were were rewarded um it seemed to suggest that the precincts that he had done the best in uh by raw vote were kind of systemically undervalued just a little bit in terms of the SDE and so in a race that close it certainly looked like you know he had kind of won the popular vote there too and so you know, I'll be honest to see, you know, both kind of Warren really surging in, in 2020 and, and then not kind of pull it out. And then, then, you know, same with Bernie, really seeing the surge in 2016 and not quite pulling it out, you know, was, was tough. And, you know, I love Iowa, but, you know, that was that was tough each time. And I uh, uh, really, really love, really love the Warren campaign. I really love the folks on the Warren campaign, love the folks on the Biden campaign, too. Similarly, as, as with after the Bernie campaign, I, I kind of felt like, you know, look, I, Biden was not my first choice in the primary. Uh, he's not the first person that that I would have voted for, but he's the nominee. And it is so important, a democratic and progressive project to elect Biden over Trump. Stand by that, you know, the assessment. And uh, I was was willing and game and, and excited to do everything that I could in my power to help help elect him. A lot of things I can't do, but I can run a large scale distributed organizing program. And so Jose Nunez, who, who was my boss in the Biden campaign, reached out. He'd gotten my name from uh, from some other folks in the Warren campaign. I interviewed with him, and uh, I was actually scheduled to hop on a plane to Alaska uh, to go do the Senate race up there. Jose offered me a job, and I, you know, basically said, "All right, you know, like let's go." And you know, just never got on the plane, and hopefully made an impact. Uh, you know, uh, I think we we hired a bunch of really smart folks. Um, the distributed program on the Biden-Harris campaign, the national distributed program, was responsible for about a third of the entirety of the campaign's voter contact attempts. Uh, so that was a team of about 27 people just kind of really uh, on the staff level. And, and of course, you know, nearly 160,000 people who participated in the distributed program on a whole as volunteers, volunteer leaders, uh, you know, certainly I think in a race that close, you know, really, really helped make a difference. What did you do new there, if anything, different than you had done before? I think better coordination with the state team. Uh, I think that there's always some, um, I think in a couple of distributed programs that have existed, um, I think there has frequently been some uh, maybe inherent tension with a distributed program and a state program. And having been on both sides of it, I think that the distributed program can be upset that, you know, the state program 
maybe doesn't want to like, you know, share lists and, and the state program can kind of feel like we don't know what the distributed program's doing. Like, why are they doing this? I think that we worked really intentionally with the state folks on both the Warren campaign, but frankly, I think, you know, just like I, I knew a little bit more of, you know, how I could approach this to try to be a more helpful partner um, on the Biden campaign, having kind of gone through it before. And I think that really helped earn trust to help make sure that folks were were able to to best collaborate. We also did a ton in terms of with the Warren campaign, we really weren't sure that we were going to have sufficient capacity. Uh, we weren't sure that we were going to be able to make all of the texts that we needed to, make all the calls that we needed to. And with the Biden campaign, there was really no doubt. I knew from from day one, any phone call anyone was going to be able to, to ask me to make, I was going to be able to, to figure out a way to organize enough of a group to do it. One of the first things I did on the, the Biden campaign was ask uh, a woman by the name of Nina Warnhoff, who was the distributed analytics director, can you tell me like what the maximum possible universe could be if, if someone asked the distributed team, like, okay, actually the organizers are all going to go knock doors in Kansas. Like we need you to make all the phone calls and send all the texts. What does that number look like? And she, she gave me a number and, you know, I thought, okay, yeah, we can, we can do that. And so from the jump was able to, I think, plan and work kind of more intentionally with the state teams, with the analytics teams to make sure, okay, what does the VBM pass need to look like? What is the, you know, who needs to get a reminder to return their vote by mail ballot or to request their vote by mail ballot? Or when there was a big Supreme Court case in Pennsylvania about um, the so-called naked ballots, where you couldn't submit a ballot just by itself, it had to be contained within like this special voting envelope, which was like a new change that a Republican court kind of put put down sort of last minute to be able to do the outreach to make sure people knew, hey, this is the new rule. And so I think because we started from the, the presumption that we were able to remind everyone who needed to vote to go do it and to make sure that we were identifying all the supporters that we were going to be able to need, that really freed us up to think more intentionally about the highest and best uses of that program. So we were able to work with the voter protection team to recruit lawyers to staff like voter protection hotlines. And we were able to work with the fundraising team to help hit end of end of quarter fundraising goals and, and things like that. And we were able just to, to really plug in with teams when they needed some additional capacity to help provide that. And so really to hopefully be a force multiplier. Um, and that's the sort of uh, project you can only take on, I think, when you have the comfort of the knowledge that you're going to be able to hit all of the sort of basics and all of the all the voter contacts and all the, the get out the vote efforts first. And so because we had that confidence, I think we were able to work just a little bit more intentionally with the teams to help uh, the rest of the campaign teams to hopefully help provide, uh, you know, even more value. What was the technology that underlay the work that you did and what worked with it and what was more challenging? You know, a lot of the texting and calling tools that have been made were really made from the perspective of um, staff are going to run this. And so it's going to be five to 10 staffers. Maybe you'll have a volunteer texter or two, but you're not. These are primarily going to be staff controlled programs. Um, you're not going to they're not going to scale that much. They're going to be you know relatively expensive for the work that you're doing. Um, and so. I think we really struggled with the tools that we were using on the Biden-Harris campaign uh, to be able to make these tools that had really been designed for really high-intensity staff programs to sort of make them work for 100,000 you know, plus people who had 
varying degrees of, of sort of tech savviness, varying degrees of support and assistance as they were logging on to use the tools themselves, many of whom were in our Slack, but many of whom were, were just kind of finding this through the website. Um, and uh, I think we really struggled to, to try to think about how best to, to onboard volunteers into, you know, somewhat counterintuitive tools that maybe didn't have the features that we wound up needing. We had to come up with some pretty elaborate workarounds to like launch the size of the texting campaigns that we needed or have the the different calling scripts that would be all live at once or to, you know, to get um, enough, camp- you know, campaigns created quickly enough and to run multilingual texting calling programs. There were all these sort of workarounds that we had to come up with. And um, on the Warren campaign, we actually built basically our own texting tool, um, a, a version of, um, a, of a texting tool called, called Spoke. After the Biden-Harris campaign, you know, many of the folks who were involved with the creation of that, um, what we called Warren Spoke, many of the folks who'd led the distributed program for the Bernie campaign, and a number of folks from the, from the Biden-Harris campaign too, kind of came together and said, look, there's got to be a better way to run these programs. And so we tried to take all of the pain points from uh, different texting and calling tools that we'd worked with in the past to try to make something that was going to be really user-friendly, have kind of the functions that you needed to actually run a large-scale volunteer program and also offer it at an affordable enough rate that campaigns could actually use this. The first texting tool we used on the Warren campaign, no joke, nearly bankrupted the campaign. You know, we were spending hundreds of thousands of dollars because it was it's a huge country and the tool was very expensive. And so we just thought there had to be a better way. And so we, we put together these tools with Skill to Win to offer them to progressives and Democrats and, and hopefully help. I had talked recently to uh, Jamie at uh, Impactive, formerly Outvote, which was rebranded by the Biden campaign. And he told me that they had built recently a, a calling addition to their relational services that they'd been asked to because of problems that they'd seen similarly. And, and I've talked to another entrepreneur who has built another sort of package of tools around the mobilization of volunteers. What is your sense of the state of the art and the competition in this arena that you're working in now with scale to win Yeah, I think it's getting better. Um, I think also we're in a relatively unique position as a company in that the folks who do product work on our team have all led, you know, the largest texting and calling programs in the country. And so where a lot of the folks in the space have kind of come to this, like, you know, I, I, I've built a tech company before. Oh, I've knocked on some doors before. I think our team really knows the pain points uh, that actual practitioners of the programs have used in the past. And so I think that we're able to really, frankly, just design the tools that we would have wanted to use. And I think because of that, that gives us a really good, frankly, competitive advantage and ability to build these these impactful tools. For example, um, we had a big problem with a previous call tool that would sync uh, disconnected Canvas statuses back to NGPVAN. And you know, if you've been a uh, a phone banker, if you've run these large scale programs, you know that that's a problem because if you tell Van that a number is disconnected they will remove um, that number basically from the database. And these disconnected detection or, or what we call answering machine detection, this detection software is not always perfect. And so we found that when we actually went back to the numbers that had been 
you know, removed from, from our database by this disconnected status uh, from this previous phone bank tool, about, about half of them were in fact valid numbers. And so rather than sync back a disconnected status, which we know Van will just then remove the number, we send back an other status so that you can, if you want, remove these numbers, um, but you don't have to. And you can instead try to um, try them again, try to text them, try to make them second pass, or just remove them. And we've generally found that to be a better approach for, for our customers and our clients. It's touches like that, and I think it sort of touches throughout the tool, where it's a problem that you only understand if you've been actively really involved in it. Yeah, that's a pretty arcane kind of glitch, but you could see where it could be consequential to lose part of your audience for technical reasons. What was the firm that was doing that? That was a, a tool or, or a company called um, called GetThrough. I believe they're also making a new dialer product, and and I think we we did work with that company to um, to change how they were syncing back disconnected statuses as well. Uh, and you know, and of course, we were able to get back. I think it was like I want to say at least a couple hundred thousand, if not a couple million numbers, you know, across battleground states. We're able to to make some fixes, but but consequential for sure. In almost any area of capitalism or the economy, when there's innovation, there often is like a bunch of seeds planted and a lot of uh, small firms or firms of various sizes spring up and compete with each other for a while until things sort out. And I think the area that you're working in has kind of had a few passes like that. I'm guessing that there's some way to go yet just because I keep seeing so many new entrants right? You don't normally see that if things are happy, whether it's pricing or service or uh, execution or whatever it is. Tell me about the sort of founding story for Scale to Win. Why are you doing this? There's the hustles and the get-throughs that have been around for a while. And then there's uh, other players that are coming in from different adjacencies and other people starting from scratch because they were organizers and they didn't like what was going on. Like, why another one? Why you? And what's the plan? Yeah. I mean, so Scale to Win is at this point, um, you know, while it's it's tough to say for sure, people have different markets, things get reported differently. Um, if you look at FEC distributions, um, Scale to Win is now the largest texting provider. Um, so we think we've made a really good product that people have been excited about. We think we've gotten really great adoption really quickly by being able to sort of, we think, make a a more user-friendly, more volunteer-friendly, more affordable offering than what is out there. Is it on top of Spoke also? Sort of, yeah. So or, we um, Or a sort of Spoke or something? Yeah. So the developers, um, on many of the developers in our team had uh, built up sort of a, this, this fork of Warren Spoke. Um, you know, in, in turn, then sort of developers have, we've, we've worked with a number of great developers to build out this what we think is a, you know, is a best in class spoke offering. So we think it's got kind of the most features, the most stability, best series of options. With some of the changes with 10DLC and the way telephony providers have kind of been starting to treat some of this, it's, it's actually meaningfully very difficult to host spoke now, much harder than it was even a couple of years ago, especially than a couple of years ago. We think that while, uh, you know, certainly for folks who want to self-host spoke, you can do so. There are still a handful of folks who are doing that. Most folks are at this point going with a, with a hosted spoke provider. And um, because sort of the, the carrier fees have gotten more expensive, Verizon, T-Mobile, AT&T have started passing through 
additional costs. I think even Twilio has ra- is raising some of their top level rates. It winds up being, you know, usually kind of a better bet uh, to go with a provider than it is to actually self-host at this point. And so we think we have kind of a, uh, a stronger fit for folks that just kind of offers more value than if you were to sort of host it, host it yourself. Tell me about the nature of the enterprise itself. I got a sense that it was not a standard CEO company structure, top-down leadership, but tell me about the company. How is it funded, run, organized, et cetera? Yeah. So, um, so we're a worker-owned co-op. Uh, so functionally, that means we're set up as an LLC, but folks sort of join, they, they go through basically a a six-month trial period, and then you know they take on some ownership stake. Um, we practice democracy at work, and that means that decisions that sort of impact everyone are, are voted on by um, worker owners. We think that this is a, a, frankly, a major competitive advantage. One, we think it's just like the right thing to do. Uh, we think people should generally have you know some investment, some stake, some say in in their in their workplace. And then it's a little strange that you know we kind of preach democracy throughout our day, but then, you know, 40 hours a week, we kind of are, you know, subscribed to this vaguely autocratic uh, form. So we, we think that, that this is sort of the right thing to do, but we also think it's a really strong competitive advantage because it means that the folks that we bring on who join the team are just really invested in the company because they, they own a chunk of it. And so particularly for political tech where there are, you know, the total addressable market is not, is not like many billions of dollars. It is a, a texting tool for political. It's a calling tool for political. Certainly there's, you know, there's a good, you know, a, a good bit of, of market out there. But, you know, we recognize Skill to Win is never going to be Google. You know, it's it's not going to be a many hundreds of people enterprise. It's not going to be a, you know, it's it's not going to be NTP Van, you know. And so we think that having sort of a, a maybe a slightly smaller company of really good, really senior, really invested in the company group really gives us a big advantage over, frankly, some of the more cyclical boom-bust hiring cycles that a lot of our competitors can go through, where they'll hire a bunch of junior staffers, you know, at the start of the year and then lay them all off at the end of the year. And we think that makes it really hard to develop internal knowledge, to improve systems, to improve processes, and just to attract good talent. And so we think that, you know, with this worker-owner co-op model, that we think we're both doing kind of the right moral thing, um, but also offering more value to our clients, to our customers, you know, frankly, the smaller headcount also helps us keep costs lower. And so um, we think that this is just kind of a better model for the campaigns, and the organizations that we serve. How many worker owners are there currently? I think it's eight right now. There are a couple of others who are sort of in the process of joining too. We are in the process of growing the team. Uh, so right now, I think all told when you factor in kind of additional folks who are sort of in the process of joining or maybe help out on a kind of a contractor basis with a few other clients they've got to, we're 16 or, or 17 or so. How do you sort out amount of ownership for a person? And how do you sort out role in, you know, setting priorities and leading? How do you figure that out? Back at the start, uh, we sort of met when we were figuring out, like, are we going to do this? We spent a long time talking at the end of 2020 uh, to figure out what this was going to look like. You know, we kind of basically just picked different uh, function areas that sort of folks would wind up would wind up leading, um, you know, kind of have stuck to that. Um, and then, you know, decisions that would typically be made by a CEO 
um, we generally reach consensus on, uh, but you know, if there's not consensus, we'll vote on it. So, you know, if there are kind of cross-functional pieces, we'll wind up just having having that vote as need be. How about the ownership part? How do you figure out, like, if somebody's working half time or somebody's working full time or someone's worked longer or shorter or uh, carries more of the water? Yeah. So um, every worker owner gets the same like stake for basically month or quarter that they're there for. We don't really have part-time worker owners. If you're a small business owner, that can be kind of, it's all uh, admittedly kind of a, 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 a an all-consuming type thing. So it's hard to kind of have folks who are sort of part-time on it. Um, but so whether you're more senior, whether you're more junior, um, you are uh, still kind of getting the same chunk of ownership each month, each quarter, and then we do profit distribution sort of based on that stake. And so, you know, certainly if you've been there for an extra year or two, or, you know, in this case, year and a half, um, you do have a larger stake because you've been there longer, but you're still earning the stake at the same rate as folks who joined last month. Is there sufficient profit to be motivating so far to the worker owners? I think so. It's kind of tough to say because it is so cyclical. Um, you know, I will say we feel, you know, generally like we're in a healthy place as a company. Folks, I think, are, are excited um, about joining. There's a, a, effectively a decent election bonus for it. Um, we also, be honest, uh, you know, do election bonuses for folks who are still in the process of joining, too, because we think that that's sort of the, the equitable and kind of just thing to do. I think that a, one of the cooler things about the worker owner thing is that then you can really see the impact. So if you, you know, work to um, help ship a new feature for some large client that like helps us land a major deal, like, you know, that's great, both because we got a really great tool in the hands of a really large organization, likely saved them a good bit of money um, for a better tool, but also because you are going to benefit a bit, a bit from that too. So it's, we think it's, um, it's a good model. You know, I, I will name, I think that people are not joining skill to win because they are like, you know, I want to go join Google and I want to go make $10 million. And, you know, I mean, it's political tech, you know, I do want to, you know, do you want to name that if if folks were really trying to maximize their profit, political tech is probably not the, uh, the enterprise that one would be joining. It is nice to be able to have some degree of like, of, you know, tangibleness, I think, to the work, both in terms of the, the features you ship, but then also sort of, if, if it's a good year, then we all do well. Yeah, I would imagine it would help recruiting people or retaining people to have uh, at least that feeling of egalitarianism and and workplace democracy. Is that something that's like part of the discussion day to day as you think about the company Mm -hmm. together? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, a lot of the where that sort of shows up in the day to day is, you know, we do a worker owner kind of co-op meeting and folks I think are generally very proactive, very taken on an initiative because everyone's a, everyone's a worker owner. And so, you know, everyone's kind of got that, you know, small business mindset and everyone's sort of got, okay, this is my thing. This is my project. This is, this is a thing that, that, you know, I want to make as good as possible. And so I think that frankly, higher standard uh, is something that I think shows up in, in all of our discussions in, and in all of the products that we ship and all of the features that we develop in all of the sort of work we do for our clients and on the sort of day to day, while we're not necessarily talking about it as a, 
okay, like this is how we're going to do the, the recruitment because it's, you know, as a worker owner spot. Or, I do think it helps. I do think the fact that we are, you know, mission aligned, that we're value aligned, that we're trying to build this together is really helpful, especially when you're recruiting a bunch of folks who have just about everyone on our team has worked in a pretty large role in a campaign. Campaigners are the sort that kind of, I think, really crave a, a team mindset, a, a team output. You know, we've sought out opportunities like that. And so to be able to say, this is the scale to win team and to not have that be some facetious tongue in cheek, you know, there's one CEO who's making millions while everyone else is kind of like, you know, doing whatever, um, I, I think is sort of an, an attitude and a value mindset that really appeals to the, to the folks that we want to work with. Do you think that scales? I mean, I can see that working really well with eight people who are all consciously committed to the cause. But as you get larger, my experience is with building an organization, policies that could be loose early on, like anybody can take as much vacation as they want as long as they're responsible. I, I had that in, in my company. It's the first person who abuses that or who was free riding and not doing their work and needs to be let go. Um, how do you, have you had to deal with any of that or how is there a mechanism for change if something isn't necessarily working with the model that you have right now on the table? We do still have, you know, like management. So like I lead our, our sales team, you know, as we kind of build out a, a sales team, you know, even if you're a worker owner, you know, there's still kind of deadlines and, and goals and, and objectives that we have to hit and sort of accountability measures um, around that. It's not as if we don't have sort of any sort of, you know, quote unquote, CEO power. It's just sort of wielded more democratically. And so, you know, if there is a policy that we have to change, you know, someone will usually raise it, we'll vote on it at, you know, one of our worker owner meetings, if there are is accountability that has to sort of like happen or something like that, we still have a mechanism for that. And also, because folks don't join as a worker owner immediately, there's kind of a six month, you know, basically lead up before someone joins, you do tend to get a pretty good sense of, okay, this is going to be a good fit, this is not. And so if someone is not going to be a good fit, you can kind of deal with that ahead of time before they sort of join the co-op itself. What's the future for scale to win as you see it? Where do you hope to take this enterprise? You know, TBD, I think we're really focused on this particular election cycle. We're working with, I think, a majority of the major Senate campaigns, many of the largest IE groups, um, the DNC and all the battleground coordinated campaigns. And so we're really focused right now on making sure that we're delivering the, the best in class P2P texting and, and calling tool. Um, I think we're also cognizant that there are a lot of cautionary tales of organizations in the political tech space that have maybe grown too big too fast and that had to do sort of those mass layoffs. So I think we are trying to build a company that can both deliver a really large amount of value for some of the organizations and campaigns doing the most important work in 2022, and also built so that we're not doing mass layoffs in 2023 when there are maybe not quite as many active elections going on. And so I think we're still kind of figuring out what that 2023 roadmap looks like, what sort of are the next sets of products. We spent almost all of 2021 building our dialer tool. And, and so, you know, and with just a handful of kind of beta users and making sure that it was going to be a, a product that we could be really proud of before we shipped. And so I think that that maybe like longer development timeline helps us like make for really good products and also does mean that like we spend just a lot of time making sure these tools are really good to go. So I think TBD exactly what's next, but I think that whatever we do, we want to do with a lot of intention. 
it sounds like you successfully displaced uh, some of the other commercial tools in the space, some, some of which we've named along the way. Was there any reaction from those companies to you getting these larger contracts? A little bit of A, a little bit of B. Um, you know, I think in, in many cases, um, there is a habit of some of the political tech companies to want to kind of grow into the nonprofit space and to sort of grow that side of the business. And so I think in some cases, some of the political tech companies are maybe already in the process of sort of pivoting to build out, you know, education sector or nonprofit sector. And so this is maybe not sort of the core of what there is focused on anymore. We do work with some nonprofits, but, you know, our, our major base is, is political. In a very real sense, I think we're not necessarily directly competing with maybe some of the larger folks who kind of are also just very focused on um, the nonprofit, the, the, you know, different sort of like sectors of the business. I do think that sort of prices have come down in the industry a little bit as people are kind of trying to be more competitive. I think that people have generally been developing additional features. We released our new dialer. Not that this was like prompted by us, but I know GetThrough is also developing a new dialer and we've seen other people make some improvements and changes to their tools. And, and we love that. I mean, I think, you know, our goal is to make sure that all of the campaigns and organizations out there doing the best work have the best tool for them. And while we hope and are very excited to compete to make sure that, that we're that tool, um, you know, if, it, if it's another org tool that sort of fits better for, for that organization, like we just want to make sure that folks have the best thing for them. And so we're, we're psyched as people kind of continue to improve their offerings and, and, you know, compete on price. So we think it's like best for the best for the, the folks who are doing the work. How much has the changes in regulatory environment and changes in the telephony companies affected what you decided to develop and how you onboard customers and make sure that they're compliant and things like that? We have an entire team of uh, customer success folks um, gamed at or aimed at helping out folks, um, you know, register for 10 DLC, register for toll free, make sure that folks are um, able to comply with kind of the changes to the telephony space. So we think that from a customer success perspective, that that's been really helpful um, and sort of is just a thing that we've had to do more of, you know, or gotten to do more of to help with them um, on the customer success side. We also have been building out a toll-free texting offering, you know, obviously started to do more in calling too, so that folks just have, you know, as there's kind of a changing telephony space, that folks just have more and more options to get their messages out, their their calls made, their texts delivered, um, to make sure that folks do have the ability to, um, you know, to, to do the outreach that they need to change minds and uh, win elections. How did you manage to land as many customers as quickly as you did? I think we just make a really good tool and I think it's at a really good price. And so a lot of times the best tool and the best <laughs> price doesn't necessarily win, right? Was it the connections that, that you guys had over time with the right people at the party committees, at the DS, et cetera? Or what do you think allowed you to uh, have success on the sales side? And we definitely know a lot of people in the space. Um, you know, I've been working on different campaigns for six or seven years. Everyone else on the team has been doing that as well. And that's practically ancient in the number of, you know, campaign cycles that most folks wind up doing. I do think that we are uh, well positioned to, you know, get a product in front of someone. And if it's a bad product, then it doesn't matter. You can put, you know, put an old shoe in front of anyone and you're not going to have luck selling it. I think the fact that we 
um, have built a tool that really speaks to the use cases that people know and, and trust us, um, that we're offering at a really good price. The premise of this is someone I know who's done great work in the past, who has built a tool that's going to save me a lot of money and also speaks to the specific pain points I've had with these previous tools is that, you know, it, it's a good offer. Um, and we also do partner with organizations like Run for Something, the Working Families Party, the DGA offers a discount to their candidates. And so we do partner with organizations who also work with many different groups of candidates to just help make sure that folks are aware of the of the options out there. And so if you're a uh, Run for Something endorsed candidate, you get a basically a 25% discount. And you know, if you um, are a DGA gubernatorial candidate, you're able to get a discount as well. And so um, that's been really helpful for us of being able to work with groups who chat with a lot of different campaigns and organizations. Is there a question that I failed to ask you that I should have? I don't think so. I think you were super thorough. I, you know, folks want to get started with Scale to Win or check out what we have to offer. They can visit our website at scalethewin.com. Okay. Well, thank you for taking the time. Anything else you want to say? I think that's it. Really great to chat. I'm excited to uh, listen to the episode when it comes out. And yeah, uh, always, always a fan of, uh, of the Great Battleground. Great Battlefield. <laughs> great Battlefield. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. It's so funny. I, I myself was in the first month, five years ago or whatever it was, I kept making that error too. But it's from, <laughs> it's from a speech by Lincoln. So, you know, I've tried to stay with Battlefield. Right, right, exactly. We are met on a great battlefield of this of this war. That was Nate Rifkin. He's at scaledtowin.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network, Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.